Reds is the evolution. It's acknowledging that when there is a relative energy deficiency or imbalance, um, that this in a male or a female can lead to um, altered or impaired physiological function of organs and you know multiple organ systems. So that could be implicating metabolic rate, menstrual function, bone mineral density, immunity, protein synthesis, cardiovascular health, libido, energy. So, you know, a whole range of implications. You just heard from nutritionist Ali McLean, and this is the Euphoria Health Podcast. Hey there, friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Euphoria Health Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sapala. For anyone that's joining in the conversation for the first time, firstly, welcome and thank you so much for jumping on board. The Euphoria Health Podcast originated from the word euphoria, which is defined as a state of intense happiness and excitement. That's exactly what I aim to do. I aim to cultivate happiness through movement. This show is your one-stop shop for all things holistic health and sustainability. The four in euphoria also has a deeper meaning behind it. The four addresses what I believe to be the four main pillars of holistic health, and they include nutrition, movement, recovery, and mindfulness. On the show, we unpack those four main pillars and we engage in insightful conversations, helping you to build on healthy foundations while setting a new benchmark for your health, one that can be sustained for the rest of your life. I don't want to be your quick fix. I want to be your only fix. Joining me this week on the show, back for her fifth appearance, is Ali McLean. Ali and I sit down and discuss an interesting topic that isn't spoken about much, known as relative energy deficiency in sport, or REDS. REDS is a syndrome which can adversely affect the health and performance of athletes when there is a negative energy balance between dietary energy intake and energy expenditure through movement. More commonly associated but not limited to endurance-based athletes that are required to have a constant energy output that lasts for long periods of time. So think your triathletes, your marathon runners, etc, etc. Reds can both be present in males and females ranging from your elite level athlete to your everyday athlete. And this is something that is often forgotten. This topic is a much more in-depth conversation than energy in versus energy out. Ali and I take a deep dive into the syndrome itself, as well as the reasons why an athlete may enter this state in the first place. REDS is a multifaceted syndrome with a huge psychological component and this podcast was such an insightful conversation to understand some of those early signs of relative energy deficiency and just how important listening to your body as an athlete can be. This in itself is an extremely challenging component and as athletes we're often taught to push past pain or discomfort, especially in endurance based athletes because the reward is often on the other side of that discomfort. But when is too far and when is the right time? These are questions that are so vitally important for athletes to be aware of. 
I'm so grateful for Ali coming on the show today and explaining some of the reasons why fueling your body for performance is so crucial, not only to succeed at your chosen sport, but to create longevity through movement. As coaches, we have such an important role in the development of this syndrome. Working one-on-one or even in a semi-private group with your athlete, I think there is a really big onus on the coach to understand your client's capabilities and put a reason behind their performance or lack of performance on that specific day. If you're having female clients, knowing where they're at with their cycle and and understanding how these clients are fueling their body and if they're getting enough energy for their energy expenditure, I think is such an important part. And this episode is a fantastic resource for coaches out there, as well as an even better resource for athletes that are trying to gain that extra 1% and take control of their health in a deeper way. Thank you so much, Ali, for your time and for sharing your wisdom on the show this week. I think this one will really hit home for a number of athletes out there. Just a little disclaimer for folks out there. This episode plays mention to eating disorders, which may be triggering for some. So listen with caution. Sorry for the slightly longer introduction today, friends. I couldn't help myself. It was an absolute blast sitting down with Ali, who is an absolute wealth of knowledge, and I hope that you guys got as much out of this episode as I did. Don't forget to send this one to a friend that you think might benefit from this knowledge and take notes where applicable. I'll catch you guys on the other side. Ali McLean, welcome back for your sixth or seventh time on the Euphoria Health Podcast. Can you can you correct me there? I would have said fourth, um, but you know what they say, time flies when you're having fun. Uh, so <laughs> thank you for having me back. I'll have to go double check my facts there. I, I might have put a bit of mayonnaise on that one. But anyway, it's awesome to have you back on the show. Um, my listeners and me in particular really respect your opinion. I know that you're a wealth of knowledge, so I can't wait to dive into today's topic. And um, I want to talk about that later on. But firstly, congratulations. You have some amazing news. And I know you've just shared that with um, your community. You are how many weeks pregnant? Thank you. Uh, I am 17 tomorrow. I always get confused as to whether I should go up or go down, but I officially hit full 17 weeks tomorrow. That's incredible. So, yeah. so good. We were chatting about how you're feeling energy levels and you said that naps used to get you through. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how you're feeling now and how oh. the first trimester was for you. Um, I, I couldn't get by without a nap, you know, um, it's really interesting experiencing. I work with a lot of women, preconception and pregnancy and, you know, the conversation of nausea and food aversions comes up all the time. I'm sort of glad now that I've just been through it so I can speak from all perspectives um, to pregnant clients. Food aversion was real. Like my partner, the only way he could really tell that we were pregnant because he was like, do you think it's real? And I'm like, I think the wee stick's true and I think the blood tests and I think the fact I haven't had a period is all, (laughs) you know, indicating to pregnant Um, was when I stopped having my morning smoothies. He was like, oh, yeah, something's really changed. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, naps, a a 12 till 12.25 middle of the day nap was the only way to help me get through the rest of my working day, (laughs) Um, you know, without having to constantly have a cracker in my mouth. So I'm very grateful that I was able to manoeuvre my schedule and tweak a few things here and there to build in um, some nap time during the day. 
That's crazy. Anyone that knows you knows how addicted you are to those morning smoothies. Why Why couldn't you have them in the morning? Just couldn't stomach them or was there a nutritional component to them that you were avoiding them? It was stomaching them. I, You're right. I've had a smoothie probably every day for the last five years to start my day and it was middle of winter, which usually isn't a deterrent, but, you know, this winter I just needed the warmth and I wanted to chew I didn't want like goop in my mouth. <laughs> um, so I came up with these, like these protein pancakes that just, I was just dreaming about them every night. So that was my breakfast. And then week 12 came around and I was craving my smoothies again. So right back into my smoothies now and um, no, no major food aversions and just now really trying to focus on nutrient density. Again. I find it so wild how the human body changes so drastically in such a short space of time. And then like 12 weeks later, you just revert back to that same person you were 12 weeks ago. It's, it's wild. I know, but I'm glad I had the knowledge that I have. Cause I was like, right, I'm really craving pizza. What can I do? And I was <laughs> making like these mushroom pizzas that I saw someone posting with like cashew cream on top and tomatoes and tomato sauce. And they just hit the spot. I was like, right. I've, you know, Got my pizza fix. Um, I definitely ate more carbs than I usually would, but certainly not beyond the bounds of, you know, healthy uh, and just trying to stick with whole food um, as best possible. But, you, yeah, your cravings definitely change or your preferences and wants definitely change. Yeah, well, I think that um, background in nutritional literacy definitely helped you there because more often than not, we do reach for those sorts of pizzas and and we don't think about the implications that that can have during our, our pregnancy journey. Um, the topic of conversation wasn't actually pregnancy today, but I'm glad we went down that route and it sort of painted the picture for um, what we're a little bit what we're going to be talking a little bit about in terms of energy and things like that. So, yeah. still relevant. Uh, yeah, definitely. Ali, today's topic is REDS or REDS, um, and that stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. I'm going to hand the floor over to you because I'll probably butcher this explanation. So for the listeners at home that have never heard of REDS, what is that? Yeah, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. It's um, a term that was introduced in about 2014, or at least that's when the um, uh, IOSC acknowledged it. And it's a term that's been brought into place, you know, since I studied at university. So when I was studying my undergraduate in exercise and nutrition in our sports nutrition lectures, we were educated on what was then referred to as the female athlete triad. So REDS is an, is an evolution of the female athlete, athlete triad, but acknowledging that there were flaws in this this term female athlete triad. So female athlete triad was essentially what was labelled to a female in sport who presented with disordered eating that led to amenorrhea or lack of a menstrual cycle or for a young female athlete who hadn't had a period before delayed onset uh, of menstruation and resulting um, osteopenia and osteoporosis, so um, weakening and brittling of the bones or, you know, simply reduced bone mineral density. So it was really limited term. Uh, you know, it was females being considered, females with disordered eating, uh, which we have to acknowledge that those with eating disorders might not even recognise it or be willing to put their hand up and, and recognise it. 
and then, of course, the flow-on effects of that being amenorrhea and osteoporosis. So REDS is the evolution. It's acknowledging that when there is a relative energy deficiency or imbalance, um, that this in a male or a female can lead to um, altered or impaired physiological function of organs and, you know, multiple organ systems. So that could be implicating metabolic rate, menstrual function, bone mineral density, immunity, protein synthesis, cardiovascular health, libido, energy. So, you know, a whole range of implications with an energy deficiency or relative energy deficiency. It's really important to acknowledge that REDS isn't just something that affects women. It isn't just something that affects people with an eating disorder because you could have a relative energy deficiency simply through not fueling correctly, um, not recovering from your training adequately, or through subconsciously um, reducing what you eat and increasing expenditure, energy expenditure, or just simply by reducing what you eat. Uh, And it's also acknowledging that this has greater implications than simply amenorrhea or reduced bone mineral density. So, that's essentially what REDS is. Um, if we want to look at energy availability um, to, to further acknowledge that it's not just about restrictive eating, it's both sides of the, you know, the seesaw or the equation that impact here. So energy availability is what's used in the, like, in the research when we're looking at people with REDS and trying to acknowledge it. Um, it's an equation, which I don't expect people to necessarily remember, but just to set the scene here, energy availability is defined as energy intake minus energy expenditure divided by the fat-free mass. So for example, um, energy intake, let's look at 2,200 calories, expenditure being 700 calories, the resulting figure being 1,500 calories. If we were to look at an individual with 40 kilograms of fat-free mass, I'll get to the point here, um, that means we are dividing 1,500 calories by 40 kilograms of fat-free mass with a result of 37.5. So in the literature, when we're looking at adequate energy availability to prevent the onset of REDS, we want it to be more than 30 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass. So in that example that I just painted, that would be considered sufficient. You know, that person had 37.5 kilocalories per kilogram of fat-free mass. In the real life, um, there are some, I guess, limitations to, you know, sitting down with someone and and doing the maths and sort of saying, okay, well, um, how much do you eat, how much are you burning through your exercise uh, and what's your fat-free mass. There's, there's, there's room for error in all, in all three of those points. Definitely. Um, so in a day-to-day setting, you can definitely do the maths and try and ascertain whether energy availability is adequate. But as we can talk about as we go, there are definitely other things you're looking at to really try and determine if – if REDS is the issue in any individual, but um, just I think just to, to help listeners understand 
how we how we define that that energy deficiency or energy availability in research. That's how we do it um, with that equation using those numbers. It's crazy to live or we live in an uh, age where fitness wearables are so so highly regarded everyone's got one on their wrists and we're quote-unquote using these as gospel like I, I burnt 12,000 calories in a, in a workout uh, 1200 calories in a workout and I had this amount through my daily steps and whatnot and looking at this equation on our watch who is just a generic equation as well to rely on gospel for us um, can put us in a state of being unprepared, I guess. Absolutely. I think last time I checked it somewhere, you've got to allow about 80% margin of error with our wearable wearable devices and the, the, um, the predictions that they make around energy expenditure and training, which is ridiculous, right? Like, oh, I did a training session with Matt and my Garmin or my fitness pal app says that I burned 700 calories in that session. Um, I would always take that with grain of salt unless you had done, you know, really rigid um, testing in a lab to understand your muscle mass versus fat mass, um, your VO2 max potentially, and how you're working in that particular session um, to then determine you know, what your energy expenditure actually is in a session. So, yeah, the wearable devices, I think, give people a bit of a benchmark and 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 a, and a means for tracking. But in terms of feeding them into an equation, like t- t- determining energy availability, there's definitely flaws. And then also with looking at consumption, uh, like for sure if, if you're feeding someone or you're there watching what they eat in a day um, and paying attention to their intake, then you might have a relatively accurate figure. But if you're getting an athlete to um, do a dietary recall, you still have to allow minimum 15% margin, but reality, especially someone with disordered eating, between 30 and 70% margin of error with someone's dietary recall. So there's, there's issues there. And then the other thing is looking at fat-free mass, different, different um, papers will calculate fat-free mass differently. Crazy. And there's such a huge (laughs) onus on the actual individual itself, which is a whole separate argument, um, whole separate conversation, I should say, being, you know, giving you the accurate information and and logging things incorrectly with that fitness wearable. So I think, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. They're a fantastic source um, to use as a metric and to compare results to, but take it with a grain of salt and don't, you know, use that as gospel. Mm, yeah. It's like when an athlete says, oh, you know, my, 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 my device says that I burned the 700 calories in that training session. Should I be adding like an additional 700 calories to my post-training meal? And I understand where the question is coming from, but my answer would never be yes. I get that question a lot as well. <laughs> no, lovely. I think it was fantastic to highlight. It's no secret that I choose to adopt a plant-exclusive diet for all of the amazing health benefits while simultaneously preserving the lives of the animals I love so much and the health of our planet. I love aligning with brands who share the same values. And that's why this show is brought to you by Greenback, an Australian-made and owned health and wellness company who is completely plant-based and vegan-friendly. 
Greenback's Better For You range features clean, complete plant protein powders, bars, cookies, and ice creams in a range of different flavors. As well as being high in protein and fiber, the whole range also has the added benefits of being gluten, dairy, and preservative free. So it's fun for everyone. The convenience of having great tasting, high protein plant-based options when I'm on the go has been a lifesaver. My personal favorite is the protein bar that is the sacred combination of dark chocolate and mint. Alongside the great tasting bars, Greenback have also just launched a high protein ice cream, making dessert an option every single night. The salted caramel flavor is heavenly. For friends of the podcast, the team at Greenback have enabled you to get a nice little discount when shopping online. Head on over to www.wearegreenback.com to see a full list of products. And don't forget to use the code EUPHORIAHEALTH at the checkout for 10% off the entire range. I will also have a direct link in the show notes for where you can purchase online. You can also get your hands on the Greenback product range at all major retailers, including Woolworths, Coles, and Chemist Warehouse. All right, let's get back to the show. Now, Ali, I think that when we talk about um, athletes, we have this picture in our mind that it's your Olympic gold medalist, that person that's training as a professional athlete full-time. But the fact of the matter is a huge chunk of the population is your everyday athlete, your person that trains four to five times per week, who works their nine to five job. Um, that is, I would still label that person as an athlete. Therefore, we should be potentially fueling that person. Well, not potentially, should be fueling that person like an athlete. And with something like Red S or Reds, would you see this more commonly in the huge chunk of the population like your everyday athletes? Or would this be something that is more common in your quote unquote professional athletes? Good question. Um, I think the research is predominantly done on, you know, um, pre-elite or elite athletes, um, those sort of leading the field, but that's where the research is. Uh, and if we look at in that, in that area, and we'll come back to the, let's say the general population and the athletes within that, uh, there was a study done looking at elite and pre-elite female athletes and based on a validated questionnaire looking at red symptoms, um, almost 80% of the females in the 15 to 32-year-old category de- um, demonstrated at least one symptom of reds uh, and almost 40% exhibited um, at least two symptoms of reds. So if we're looking at that level of the population, it's pretty prolific. It's, it's out there. It's happening. Uh, if we look at the general population, I mean, I work with a lot of women who are dealing with amenorrhea or um, more specific, specifically hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is really when there is a relative energy deficiency and the female reproductive system is basically getting the message from the brain or the hypothalamus to say, there's energy, there's energy deficit. We don't know when it's going to be recouped. Um, so stop ovulating because it's not a safe time to procreate. And look, that's definitely something that was going through my mind when I was, you know, preparing to try to conceive. So coming back around to that, that initial part of our conversation was I wanted to do everything I could to make sure that my brain, my ovaries was feeling safe and like, yep, now is a time to ovulate and conceive. 
Um, but I see a lot of women in clinic who are dealing with hypothalamic amenorrhea who aren't professional athletes. They're individuals who don't know how to um, fuel or recover from their training appropriately or they're individuals who are dealing with a level of disordered eating, perhaps because they've been led to believe that a 1,200 calorie per day diet, for example, is what you should be following if you're a female who wants to look good in the bikini over summer or, you know, in your tights all year round. Um, so it's it's prevalent. I just don't have the numbers on, on how it might be prevalent within the, the general community. Um, certainly the type of sport that's being done might impact both at the, the elite and, you know, non-elite level. So the sports where there's um, an emphasis on, you know, how lean somebody is, um, whether that be um, track and field, cycling, gymnastics, um, synchronised swimming, although I don't get the many people coming to me that are doing synchronised <laughs> swimming. Um, triathlon, marathon, um, and then the sports where there's often weighing in happening, um, you know, wrestling, boxing, um, those sorts of sports where they're weighing in and restricting to try and meet a, a certain, um, weight target or, or weight category. Um, I work with a lot of endurance athletes, um, so, I see that being a big risk area just based on my day-to-day work as well. Crazy. So the just, amount of work that they're doing, sorry, just to provide context. Some, some you know, triathletes are doing 14 to 20 hours of training a week. Not elite, just because they love the sport and that's what it demands of them. It's almost another full-time job. Absolutely. It's a sport that very much attracts the type A personality. So, you know, any triathlon coaches listening will know exactly what I mean by that. And if you've coached any, I'm sure you know what I mean, but it is, it's a, it's a job on top of their job. And I've got a lot of athletes that have children and families as well. So, you know, they're up at 4.30, training till 7, off to work, home, fitting in their second session at 7pm and then off to bed and doing it all over again. It's a really intense sport. So there's big, I guess, risk for error um, when there's that much energy being expended in training. So if they don't get the recovery right and they don't get the refueling right, um, then they're at risk of things going wrong. As I said to you off air, um, at the mo like at this very point in time, like you know, in the last week or two, um, the, the client I'm working with to avoid relapse of reds is a male triathlete, um, not with an eating disorder, just trains hard, is plant based, so he naturally has to eat more anyway to get the energy in. He's very conscious of the quality of his food. So, again, you know, not the sort of person who's just going to quickly duck into McDonald's to fill up on something. Uh, and and that resulted in, for him, symptoms of reds, which in a male where maybe you don't have that monthly menstrual cycle as that report card to show, um, you know, something's wrong here. Um, for him, the big tell, telltale sign was libido, just an absolute drop in libido and 
almost being able to tell week on week, month on month, um, how he's tracking with his intake and expenditure and balancing that through libido. It's crazy. I was actually going to ask the next question about some of those early signs and symptoms, but you've opened up a beautiful can of worms. I think it would be a great place to start with males because we're already on the topic. So what are some of those early signs and symptoms of REDS, particularly within males first? Mm, um, well, there's definitely definitely crossover um, with a lot of the symptoms. I think change in libido would be, you know, a great way in men in, in, in terms of tracking their testosterone. Um, and I never say to a male client, like, oh, how's your libido at the moment, right? Because they'll probably say, great, they're not going to go into much detail. Um, so I usually say, could you tell me in terms of libido, is it low, medium or high in comparison to what you're used to? And, you know, give them a, a few variables, not just give them an open, open-ended question to respond back to. Um you can definitely do testosterone. So you could do a blood test um, to look at at, at, at serum testosterone. Um, but I guess in terms of you know early warning signs and symptoms, we're looking at that libido. Um, but it could be irritability. It could be low mood. Um, it could be fatigue, weight loss, reduced output like not feeling as strong, you know, someone who's strength training, for example, and not able to lift the way that they're used to, that'll be a sign, a potential sign, or let's say it is an endurance athlete and their heart rate's suddenly a lot higher in in a session where it would previously be averaging lower, that would be a potential indicator or a sign that, um, that REDS is there. And low energy, if I didn't already say that. And if we did do the testing, uh, let's say it's um, a male athlete that just is very health conscious and likes to do their annual bloods and requests that their doctor includes testosterone in there. Anything less than 10 nanomoles per litre would be considered low. Um, I generally like to see it a bit higher than that, but anything less than 10 nanomoles per litre is is definitely low and um, indicative of low testosterone and potentially driven by reds. Well, maybe we look at females first, have a look at some of the um, the signs for women. A lot of it would be similar. Um, low energy levels, irritability, poor concentration, fatigue, change in heart rate, Um However, I would add that the early, like early warning signs would be a change in cycle length. Um, perhaps they're starting to get some really long cycles or one really long cycle follow up, followed up by a normal length cycle, keeping in mind that the cycle is the time between day one of the period to day one of the next period. Um, so even just signs of amenorrhea, like the period going a little wonky or the cycle going a little wonky would be an indicator that, hmm, there's probably a form of stress here. So let's just make sure that you are looking at what you're eating when you're eating and let's just do a general assessment to have a look at if if it's enough. And then, of course, if amenorrhea was present, like no period for three months, then that would be perhaps even a more progressed sign, you know, because that's three months in. Um, to to energy energy deficiency taking place and reduce like reduce sex drive does does happen for women as well 
I think a lot of those symptoms, they do definitely cross over. Um, and it's easy as an athlete for you to like almost overlook those, those things. Mm. And often our body's got a very unique way of telling us when to slow down. Um, red is obviously on the latter end of that spectrum, but something earlier could just be like increasing your likelihood of intru- injury and frequency of injuries. And that's like, I see that as your body, potentially if you're keeping up with such a vigorous exercise regime, as your body forcing you to stop or, or to decrease your energy expenditure a little bit more because mm. you're forced to slow down. Yeah, definitely. And what do we know about a lot of athletes, right? Like they, they don't listen to their body, especially those that are, endurance athletes that have to be out on the track you know let's say it's a full Ironman for 10 plus hours or even a half Ironman you know three six or seven hours depending on the person doing it you you have to work through a level of pain there um, in order to keep going so it's almost a default for a lot of athletes to just like shun the niggle, not don't pay attention to the niggle, just keep going. Or for athletes that have to rock up every week to a, a game or match scenario, like how often would you just like pull yourself together for the game or the match that you've got to get out for on the weekend because your team needs you. So even just highlighting, yeah, like listen to your body, I think for athletes might be a new concept. I know it was for me, like when I was, dealing with probably my third or fourth osteopath trying to get to the bottom of my hamstring. And they were like, can you just stop running when it gets to about a five out of 10? And I was (laughs) like, do you know what? That's really hard for me to acknowledge or understand what a five out of 10 is because I come from a marathon running background. Like you're not going to get past 32K if you you stop running when it's uncomfortable. You just keep going. Definitely. And there's a huge psychological component there in terms of like, quote unquote, callousing your mind to push parts those uncomfortable periods. Um, So for asking an athlete to just stop at that point of time is actually really, really challenging mentally for them because you need to push past those barriers, like you just said. Mm, Yeah. And then I guess with maturity, age comes maturity. With maturity comes the ability to stop and reflect and think long term um, about how you're taking care of yourself. Because the the reality is, is that the long lasting effects of REDS would be, you know, like early departure from your sport because of um, the mood, like the mood issues that could present, therefore, you know, the lack of motivation, the lack of drive, um, the lack of joy, or it could be the niggling injuries that become more significant, more frequent, or the niggling injuries that aren't just like minor injuries, they are um, broken bones or stress fractures, which result from the, you know, the reducing or declining bone mineral density that can happen with this relative energy deficit. So I think, yeah, it's like, how quickly can we mature athletes? So they're thinking long-term, not just about this season or next season, which I totally understand, right? Like most athletes are thinking, you know, the next qualifiers, the ne- this season, next season, then not necessarily thinking, you know, do I want to be doing this sport in 10 years' time? Because that might not even be the length of, you know, that athlete's um, possible, you know, time in their sp- sport at a really high level. But for most athletes, elite or non-elite, the every, you know, the person that's training every day, you do have to think about longevity in the sport. 
And that's when you start to listen to your body. <laughs> definitely. What I was trying to say. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Hey, friends, just a quick word from a sponsor of the show, and then we'll get right back to it. My Euphoria Health community would know that I adopt a plant-exclusive diet, a diet that is often labelled as lacking nutrients. While majority of the essential nutrients can be attained from a plant-rich diet, there are some nutrients that need a little extra love. Lucky for us plant-based folks, Emil have formulated the Essential 8 Multinutrient, which features some key nutrients that plant-based eaters may fall short on. The eight key nutrients formulated in the capsule include omega-3, iodine, selenium, iron, vitamin D3, vitamin B12, calcium, and zinc. Conveniently, just two capsules per day provide me with the ability to bulletproof my plant-rich diet as well as ensuring I'm not falling short on any nutrients of focus. I personally take two capsules of Essential 8 every day with breakfast, which ensures I can maintain my vital, bubbly self and continue to promote active living within the community. The best part about it is that Emil have taken the hassle out of the reordering process through their monthly subscription model. Essential 8 just arrives at my doorstep each month, no questions asked. To get yours, head to www.emil.com forward slash euphoria health. That's www.eimele.com forward slash euphoria health and use the code euphoria health at the checkout for an extra 5% off your first order on top of the generous subscription discount. I will also have a direct link in the show notes. All right, let's get back to it. Ali, we spoke about some of those early signs and symptoms earlier for both males and females. We spoke about the diagnostic criteria, which would sometimes be blood work or most often not be blood work. When would be a ideal time for an athlete that is experiencing these symptoms of, of reds to go speak to a nutritionist or a dietitian and, and get some further investigating done? Would it be more acute, acutely mm. um, experiencing of these symptoms or would there be more what, longer term? What would your time frame be for something like this? Well, look, in terms of jumping on top of it, like the earlier, the better, you know, let's not let it linger too long because, you know, the, the longer that female is going without a period or the longer they're not, not acknowledging the discrepancies in the lengths of their menstrual cycle, the longer the male is going with, you know, this fatigue, this change in libido, this poor recovery from their training and not being able to focus at work, um, the you know, the, the bigger the hole they're digging for want of a better term and therefore the more work there is to to pull back out of it. Um, ideally an athlete or anyone training regularly is, you know, seeing their doctor once a year, twice a year, getting some testing done or ideally they're really in tune with their body, how it's feeling and, and these signs, which is why like conversations like this are really helpful. Yeah, not everybody might be progressed to all the signs and symptoms of REDS, but as that research um, showed us on pre-elite and elite female athletes, like 80% of them meet one criteria, you know, one criteria alone. So jumping on it earlier just means we can get out of it earlier and, and then continue training really well and, and doing it properly. So I guess the earlier, the better Um, for a lot of people, the first well, it really, it depends. The first port of call might be the doctor just to say, hey, 
my period's doing funny things or um, I've got really low energy levels and a doctor at that stage would typically run some bloods and I certainly wouldn't be opposed to blood testing being done or taking some measures like heart rate and blood pressure, for example, because those things will drop um, when there is um, relative energy um, deficiency. Um, But some great bloods to look at would be things like iron studies, a full blood examination, so we can look at whether this person has anemia or suboptimal iron levels, which could result from not eating enough or having a um, a relative energy deficiency and, you know, a cause of the low energy levels. I'd also love to see things like thyroid measures being done because our thyroid hormones can be affected by energy deficiency and result in change in energy and metabolic rate. Hormones would be great. So in men, that's testosterone. In women, looking at something or things like luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone would be important. Not a norm, not a normal, shouldn't say that. Not your average doctor would test fasting insulin, but I would also recommend testing for fasting insulin because when that is low, look, most of my clients have quite high insulin, which is a whole other condition of um, uh, reducing insulin sensitivity. Um, but low insulin could be a sign of being underfed. So that's a good metric to have a look at um, to assess whether there is a relative energy deficiency, um, vitamin D, B12, zinc. They would be the main ones to, to look at. And that could be something that someone's asking their doctor about or if I saw somebody who I thought um, was showing signs of REDS and I wanted on paper, some indications that it was that, or I wanted some tangible metrics for us to start really working on so we could get really specific with the dietary protocol, I would do those tests. Um, Especially if it's someone who is having trouble acknowledging how much they eat, because that might happen, right? (laughs) Um, You might have somebody who's sort of over overestimating or underestimating their eating and their training coming back to that you know that earlier topic about energy availability you might have somebody who's not quite getting on the mark with their intake and output um so testing is a great way of just coming back to the facts and saying okay look right well this low insulin here is indicating that's probably not enough coming in so can we go back and let's actually go through your food recall together or let's do it again or let's do a diary for the next couple of days in real time and really look at what's coming in or what's going out and um I guess just yeah when I find with a lot of personalities having numbers on paper um can really be helpful it takes the emotion out of it and we Of course, when you're looking at lab results, you've always got to look at the individual, but sometimes it can help to bring the individual along. Yeah, definitely. And everyone's um, like standard serving size or standard portion size is completely different. And they could think that that person's normal is someone else's high or someone else's low. So having those numbers, I think is a great um, objective metric to look at. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, a food diet that has um, banana smoothie for breakfast, like that's not a food diary. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's what I get a lot in clinic. 
I always just joke and say, look, I'm a numbers person. I'm sorry, I'm a details person, but, you know, how big was the banana? What else was in there? Um, oh, yeah, yep. Yeah, okay, so you added some dates, okay, and, and it's added some chia seeds and you added protein powder and oh, there was also a mango in there and oh, some greens powder, wonderful. So, you know, suddenly we're getting some real insights as to what was in the smoothie, Um how many chia seeds or, you know, how much in the way of chia seeds and start to dig a little bit more deeper into the detail. But, yeah, like you need a detailed food dough to have a look at what's coming in. Definitely. I um, tip my hat off to anyone who's individually counting their chia seeds and putting those in the smoothie. <laughs> I sort of alluded to that being the expectation. <laughs> it's definitely not. <laughs> definitely. No, that's too funny. Um, Ali, I think that what we spoke about earlier, particularly with females at that period is your monthly report card. I think um, a fantastic way to look at overall health in particular symptoms of, of red for female athletes that are using the oral contraceptive pill, it can be really flawed because you're getting that withdrawal bleed with the oral contraceptive pill. So therefore it would not be a great metric to utilize um, diagnosis of this. Yeah. So mm. I think that's where that um, objective point of view with the blood comes in and looking at all of those other external symptoms um, to get a full picture. Would you agree or have anything to add? Um, definitely agree. I think with the oral contraceptive pill, which is it's still used. I don't have percentages, but it's absolutely still used as a form of contraception or a form of, you know, quote unquote, balancing hormones or treating acne or, um, dealing with painful periods, it, it essentially shuts off um, ovarian hormone production. So it's, you know, a non-permanent castration, so to speak. So it basically stops that female from um, having a period. So it is a withdrawal bleed when you're on the oral contraceptive pill and you're right. Therefore, you cannot use that as a measure of, um, you know, energy adequacy because that girl's just having a withdrawal bleed. Layer on that the fact that some athletes or a lot of people on the oral contraceptive pill will proactively skip a withdrawal bleed because they don't want a period, you know, trying to create ease in their life. So they'll skip their periods, so they're then missing that sign. Um, the other thing is that some, some girls on the oral contraceptive pill sometimes won't get a withdrawal bleed, which is abnormal. And that's when I would say, oh, real, like real red flag that something is going on. But unfortunately, you, you can't necessarily discern between it being reds or some other, like, I guess, adverse response to the pill until you come off the pill and look at whether a period um, reappears. So, for example, I had a... Um, a a female client, um, mid to late twenties, exercising regularly, not not wanting to sort of go to any national championships, but wanting to run marathons uh, and you know do her best at them and enjoy them, which means being fit if you want to enjoy it. Uh, on the oral contraceptive pill, and had prior to working with me, lost a lot of weight through trying to, but lost a lot of weight and had started getting the had had been getting the withdrawal bleeds but after working together for a number of months those withdrawal bleeds weren't happening anymore we did a lot of work on making sure that 
um, there was energy availability and she was recovering and we looked at training heart rate and um, how often she was training. So we did as much as we could to reduce the risk of there being reds, but no period. It still didn't come back. So then we talked about, okay, well, should we come off the pill and look at whether your period comes back? And that's obviously a two-way conversation, um, you know, making sure that nobody ever feels like coming off the pill is their only option um, because there's other ramifications. But in this case, you know, contraception was her main reason for being on the pill and that wasn't really an issue anymore. So she was more than happy to try and understand why she wasn't getting that withdrawal bleed uh, and decided to come off it. And it didn't come back for a number of months after coming off the pill. So then we agreed, okay, now it's time for a little further investigation. And the doctor wasn't happy with the level of testing that we were doing, but we were screening for celiac disease as well. And it came back positive. This is somebody yeah. without digestive discomfort. Um, but I knew that we had worked through energy availability. We'd come off the pill. We tried to see if the body would stabilize off the pill and it wouldn't. And it wasn't until we, we dug further into things that could address energy or nutrient absorption like celiac disease to then get to the bottom of why she wasn't cycling. So there are many causes for why somebody might lose their period, but coming back around to the contraceptive pill, it's, it, it is misleading. And sometimes the only way to truly understand what the pill is telling us or what's happening is to come off it. It's so multifaceted and it's not as simple as, all right, you're missing your period, you have reds, or you're low in libido, you have reds. It's a whole holistic health journey. And I think, you know, steering away from what the, I guess the industry is changing a little bit, the health and fitness industry and nutrition is changing a little bit in the way that people are, are more open and receptive to digging deeper, um, which is exciting, but it's not as simple as just a, a one and done solution. It's trying to find out what other areas um maybe causing this. And I, I love that about holistic health. It's always, there's always another question that, that pops up. So yeah, I think it's definitely really important for all athletes to stay in tune with their body and notice these signs and symptoms and having objective measures as well to track these, um, these things, like we were saying, a decreased um, amount of weight that you're being able to lift, a decreased energy output, a decrease in other metrics that you can easily see and, and correlate to. I think that's a really, really important factor as well as all those internal signs and symptoms that we spoke about before. Mm. Things definitely evolving, you know, um, for the individual who's looking at holistic health, I think there's got to be, not. I don't think, but there's definitely trusting in the process you know, like knowing that it's not a quick pill for an ill solution, you know, that person who's lost their period and is expecting that there is just like this golden ticket to getting it back. Well, when you're working with holistic health, you're acknowledging that you're peeling back the layers of the onion to get to the, the real cause, the root cause of the issue. So I think from the individual who's going through the journey, there has to be a willingness to step up and, and get involved in the process. And then, on the side of the practitioners that are involved, yeah, there's a lot more space for holistic practitioners now, a lot more trust in holistic practitioners, a lot more education for holistic practitioners um, in terms of main, like maybe, maybe not mainstream, but like more Western um, practitioners, you know, your frontline, first port of call, GPs, there's obviously 
obviously, or maybe not obviously, a lot more training for them now to work more holistically. And we have, you know, doctors' clinics that are now built around um, functional practitioners, but there's still, I think, room for improvement there, um, without doubt, because one of one of the common and biggest roadblocks to me being able to address things for my clients is um, that support from their doctor, whether it be just moral support or support getting testing um, that isn't always there. And when I support say support getting testing um, in Australia, um, Medicare does cover a lot of blood tests, um, but general practitioners, you know, that frontline support are really the, the gatekeepers as to what gets, what goes through and, and what is approved um, for Medicare funded testing. And I appreciate that, you know, it's their reputation, their, you know, their jobs on the line if um, they happen to get in trouble with Medicare for the testing that they're doing. Um, however, um, I think if we had more doctors trained in holistic practice, they would be a much more open to doing m- more testing. Um, a fasting insulin, for example, in a in a person who's not overweight would be considered um, perhaps a bit of extra testing that a functional holistic doctor would would totally understand and not not consider an extra. And you can get testing that's not Medicare covered, so an individual can go via their nutritionist or naturopath, or even just jump online now and buy referrals for tests. That's totally accessible. There's a great platform called iScreen.com.au, so i-screen.com.au, where you can buy referrals for basically whatever bloods you want to get done without having to go via a doctor. How often would you suggest someone gets their routine bloods? I personally get them once a year, um, sometimes twice yearly. How often would you recommend? I think once a year is highly appropriate. Uh, and then adding on that, if there's like any added level of complexity, um, for example, if there's if there's results determined in that annual blood test that need to be treated and affected, well, then you might do a follow up within three months or six months of that original test, and then develop a you know a testing plan um, from there. Um, maybe in a female who's plant-based, who's training a lot. So there's, you know, a lot of variables that could be affecting nutrient adequacy and hormones. Maybe you do it every six months. But I think an annual blood test is a really great place to start. And you add on that if there's any added level of complexity. Yeah, awesome. I think that's a really important point to highlight. Just to add on your point before about holistic healthcare and, and practitioners in the space, I really think that trainers and coaches play a really important role in this as well. You're often the first point of call for a lot of athletes and everyday athletes, and you're seeing these these things on an everyday basis. So having that conversation with the athlete and sparking the conversation to then go and seek further guidance, refer onwards, I think is a really, really important thing to have in your toolkit. I know Ali, I've got a fantastic referral system going on with you and and a brilliant, I guess, repertoire of, of allied health practitioners that I do trust that I know that I'm passing on my clients, my members um, mm-hmm. into great people's hands so we can actually dig deeper and, and help that person. And I think as a, a trainer or a coach, building a repertoire of of people in your corner that can help you dig deeper is, is essential. Yeah. And as a trainer, as a coach, 
I agree with you. Like there's such a role to play in being aware of these early warning signs that we talked about. And that, that means knowing your, knowing your client, knowing your athlete, no matter what level they're, they are at, knowing your athlete, knowing that if they're a male or a female, you're looking for different things. And I think that's, that's almost now what, what makes a great trainer is knowing that, okay, well, you know, my female clients, if they're cycling versus if they're on the pill or they're postmenopausal or, you know, haven't, haven't started menstruating yet, um, if they're cycling, then, I, you know, maybe I'll try and understand and get to know from them how they feel at different stages of their cycle so I can understand what's a normal output for that time of the cycle um, maybe I'll stay in touch with them about how regular their period's been just so I know that there's um, no major discrepancy or little wiggle wobbles happening with the cycle. I think that is a great coach. Like I was just speaking to a friend that's in town from New Zealand. He he is a trainer over there, ex-soccer um, player, and he was saying like all of his clients when he first started training were female so he very quickly had to start to learn okay I'm gonna check in with them about where they're at in their cycle because I've noticed that training this week and they've not been able to give me as much um, or they're fatiguing more quickly or they're showing signs of discomfort more quickly so let's start to tune in to where these people are in their cycle so I can properly assess whether that day's output is maybe a hormonal um, symptom of hormonal change or Maybe it is a symptom of long, you know, long-standing energy defic- deficiency that we need to get on top of. So yeah, I think holistic coaching is really big. I could not agree more. I love that, and I think that's a fantastic point of the conversation to to wrap it up. Do you have anything to add in terms of things that both athletes and coaches should be looking out for from a, a Reds point of view, or anything you'd like to add for the conversation, Ali? No, I think I, I think it is just coming back to those early signs and symptoms. Uh, and being aware when they're present, obviously acknowledging that there's other things that contribute, you know, like sleep deficiency, um, but, you know, not eating enough, training too much um, really does need to be looked at. And without judge or bias, just, all right, let's understand um, are these early signs and symptoms a reflection of um, relative energy deficiency? So for some people, you know, looking at the topic on paper, they might be like, oh, that doesn't apply to me. But hopefully in listening to this, your coaches and individuals are sort of thinking, okay, all right, well, if I do find myself in holes where I am a bit more fatigued or I do find that this athlete's flailing really quickly, maybe we do need to think about whether there is a bit of energy inadequacy. Yeah, definitely. I think that weekly check-in, um, if you're a coach or, or a trainer with your client and, and really staying on top of um, that person's health and longevity is is um is really crucial in helping them have longevity within the sport and longevity within movement right you don't want to have that sour taste and often as humans we we correlate one thing to another and then get a sour taste about that and we won't do that ever again but it might not actually be the case there so so really digging deeper i think is is so so important yeah absolutely um but thanks for creating a platform where people can learn about these things uh I think it's awesome. So thanks for putting it together. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, Ali. I think um, my community know you know you very, very well and, and definitely a reputable source in the space and really, really caring about people's health and longevity. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. 
thank you all so much for tuning in this week. I hope you got as much out of today's episode as I did. As usual, let us know that you're listening by screenshotting the cover of the podcast and tagging Euphoria Health in on socials. Don't forget to subscribe to the Euphoria Health podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a nice little review if you're loving the show. Stay happy and stay healthy and let's get moving. I'll speak to you guys next week. The information found on euphoriahealth.com or any of its media platforms is intended for educational purposes only. Any statements made on these platforms are not intended to diagnose, cure, treat or prevent any disease or illness. Please consult with your medical practitioner before making any changes to your current diet and lifestyle.